I just want to jump in really quickly to ask a very important favour. We know that most of you who listen to No Bullshit Leadership haven't yet hit the subscribe or follow button on your favourite podcast player. This is how the podcast grows. And even though we've already got a pretty decent global following, we're only scratching the surface of what's possible. We started this podcast over five years ago with the lofty ambition of improving the quality of leaders globally. So if you've got any benefit at all from listening to the podcast, I'd ask you to just take a moment, literally a moment, to hit the subscribe or follow button on your favourite player. The world needs more no-bullshit leaders, and you can help us to make that happen. Back to the episode. Are you selling a little or a lot? Either way, Shopify helps you do your thing. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launcher online shop stage, to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. It helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. In fact, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And now you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Most of the business owners who listen to No Bullshit Leadership want to go large. What's so cool about Shopify is that no matter how big you want to grow, it gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash leadership, or lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash leadership now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash leadership. Hey leaders, M here. We're finalizing Marty's 2024 speaking calendar and he still has a few opportunities available. Now you've experienced the impact that Marty has on the podcast, but that's only a tiny fraction of the impact that he has when he delivers an in-person keynote presentation. If you'd like to book Marty to speak at your organization's event, go to martingmore.com or send us an email at hello at martingmore.com and we can chat about how to tailor his powerful message to your leaders to achieve real results. All right, now back to the episode. Welcome to the No Bullshit Leadership Podcast. In a world where knowledge has become a commodity, this podcast is designed to give you something more, access to the experience of a successful CEO who has already walked the path. So join your host, Martin Moore, who will unlock and bring to life your own leadership experiences and accelerate your journey to leadership excellence. Hey there, and welcome to episode 115 of the No Bullshit Leadership Podcast. This week's episode, Does Innovation Create Value? Sexier? isn't always better. Now we've got a fantastic question from one of our regular listeners about how to manage and nurture innovation without killing it. Innovation has become a very overused term, which can probably be found in the bullshit bingo dictionary, somewhere between agility and strategic. And the terms become so hackneyed that it can sometimes be almost meaningless. But before the word innovation is banished to the annals of management jargon, I want to explore the concept by stripping away some of the mystique and giving you some practical guidelines for managing the innovation process in your organisation. Now we cover a huge amount of ground in this bumper episode, so grab the popcorn and strap yourself in. 
we're going to start by getting a rudimentary understanding of innovation theory and the principles behind it. I'll then take a look at everyday innovations that need to be managed in every organisation. And I'll finish with a look at the balance and trade-offs in creating an innovative culture in your organisation. So let's get into it. What is innovation? Well, look, it's really anything that's perceived to be new. And this includes a lot of things, right? New ideas, new technologies, new products and services, new features in existing products, even new methods, procedures and processes. Basically, innovation is anything that improves the status quo. Now, if we go back to Clay Christensen's defining work, The Innovator's Dilemma, he talks about two types of innovation. There's disruptive innovation and there's sustaining innovation. Disruptive innovations bring products to market in a way that hasn't been done before. And there are two subclasses of disruptive innovation. So the first is low-end disruption, and this basically satisfies an over-service customer. These things disrupt the current market with a cheaper product that substitutes for an existing product. Now the genius here is delivering a product with sufficient quality and features to satisfy an existing need that a customer has, but at a lower price point. The classic example that Christensen uses here is the rise of mini mills in steelmaking. Now they could produce steel much more cheaply than traditional steelmaking processes. This lower quality steel disrupted the low end of the market first, which is why they're called low end disruptions. Now in the case of mini mills, it was first used in rebar, the steel used to strengthen concrete. And when mini mills first started producing this at lower cost, the big steel companies didn't care. It was the low end of the market and it wasn't particularly profitable and it was only a really small percentage of what the big steel manufacturers sold. They thought, well, look, let's not spend time and energy fighting the mini-mills. They can have that low-end stuff. So they ceded that market segment to the mini-mills. But the mini-mills improved their quality over time. And over about a 20-year period, mini-mills improved the quality of their product, retaining the lean nature of their processes and capital intensity. Before the big players knew it, Mini mills had captured steel bars and rods, and then they'd moved to producing structural steel, and each time the big steel companies ceded strategic ground, and they couldn't respond. Eventually, mini mills could produce steel across almost all categories at the same level of quality, much more cheaply. Now, the most interesting thing is that until 1965, the major steel companies held 100% market share. Then, when the first mini mills emerged, they used scrap steel to give them a significant cost advantage in both capital and operating expenditure. And the initial quality concerns were addressed over the years. Mini mills basically chased traditional steel makers up the value chain. Now, the major players in the steel market of the 20th century are all but gone. Bethlehem Steel was deregistered in 2003, and US Steel was removed from the S&P 500 index in 2014. Now, the second type of disruptive innovation is new market disruption. And these types of innovations deploy new technologies that deliver completely new categories of products. So rather than competing against existing products in established markets, new market disruptions compete against non-consumption. So in other words, whole new markets are created by the introduction of something that didn't previously exist. Now, there's some obvious examples of market disruptions. Um, The automobile which disrupted the horse and carriage. Then there's the entertainment industry, where videotapes were disrupted by DVDs, which in turn were disrupted by streaming services 
brought in by companies like Netflix. And every so often you even see innovations that disrupt multiple product categories and markets. So smartphones, for example, when the iPhone was introduced in 2007, disrupted mobile phones, it disrupted portable GPS units, and it disrupted digital cameras. But not all innovation is disruptive. Sustaining innovations are incremental improvements to existing products. Now, they often come as a result of customer feedback or a perceived opportunity to improve on what's already there. Engineers, designers, sales and marketing people alike tend to have a steady stream of ideas for product enhancements, which would be classified as sustaining innovations. Sometimes products can do both over time. So the iPhone was clearly a market disruption, created a new market that never existed previously. But since the initial disruption, the iPhone has introduced a range of sustaining innovations with each new release. So cameras with improved pixel counts, uh, larger storage, seamless interface to iCloud backup services, and so on. But what we see quite often is that sustaining innovations tend to overshoot the mark. Now remember, when we were talking about low-end disruption, that actually comes from providing cheaper options for an over-serviced market. And basically, there comes a time when customers aren't prepared to pay any more for the incremental improvements that are built into a product that they're using. Now, I'm particularly aware of this, and I'm not prepared to pay for new features that offer no real additional benefit to me. So in the case of the iPhone, I'm not the guy who lines up to get the latest model just because it has a 12 megapixel camera. You see, sometimes companies fall into the trap of feeling as though they need to add features to their products all the time. But if they can't actually sell more units because the new features are so desirable, or if they can't charge more for those features, it's value destructive for the company to keep doing that. So why is it so hard for most established companies to innovate effectively? Look, there's a few really good reasons. The first is fear of cannibalisation. Now think Eastman Kodak here. Kodak had digital camera technology very early on. In fact, the first digital camera was invented by Kodak in 1975. So why didn't they use it to disrupt the market? Because their cash cow was 35mm film. This was highly profitable and virtually ubiquitous in the world of photography. Kodak figured that if they introduced it to market, it would just eat the profitability in their 35mm film business, so they didn't develop it and bring it to market properly. But if we bring a new innovation, do we eat into our customer base? Important considerations that need to be weighed up, especially in the world of short-termism and annual bonus structures. The second problem is uncertainty. If you have a potential market disruption, there's very little data to support it. Why? Because the market doesn't exist yet. You can't size profits and market share when there's no comparable market. The third barrier is investment rationality. Now, this is quite ironic. Larger organisations with established products generally have robust investment processes that demand certain financial hurdles are met before an investment can be made. They also have a capital rationing process because there are always more good ideas than there is money to fund them. So in the fight for capital, new ideas and innovations tend to lose out to established product suites that generate healthy returns and predictable profits. It's hard to get funding for high-risk business cases that may or may not provide the return on investment a company seeks. And finally is the problem of materiality. Now, I ran into this a few times in my career, even in the energy sector where disruption was obvious and unavoidable. There's no doubt the world will transition, hopefully quickly, away from electricity generated from fossil fuels 
two cleaner sources. But when you're making a billion dollars in revenue from said coal-fired power, and you get the choice between investing here and investing in new technologies that are more likely to bring in maybe a few million dollars of revenue, it's a really tough choice. And when the new investment really doesn't touch the sides in terms of materiality, it's tough to go after that hard. That's why the general rule of thumb on innovation is this. Incumbent firms tend to win on sustaining innovations, and new entrants are the ones that win on disruptive innovations. Now, of course, there are exceptions to this rule. Um, Some industries like biotech, for example, rely heavily on innovation for their futures, and they spend an enormous amount of money on research and development. There are others, like tech companies, that have to continually innovate. And then there are far-sighted companies like 3M. Now, unlike Lisa Kudrow in Romeo and Michelle's high school reunion, 3M actually did invent post-it notes. And 3M reportedly spends around 6% of annual revenue on R&D. That's around $2 billion per annum. Now, the types of innovation we've looked at so far are product innovations that are largely customer-facing. But not all innovation is about the go-to-market piece. The vast majority of industries are relatively boring, predictable, and stable. Harnessing innovation to improve these businesses is important, but it's not like inventing the iPhone or developing a vaccine for COVID-19 or revolutionising space travel. It's in this space that innovation can commonly be found in organisations right across the globe in virtually every industry and market. These are the everyday innovations that improve the way work is done inside an organisation. And this is where I'm going to focus for the rest of the episode. We're talking about the type of innovation that improves internal performance, the changes that bring greater efficiency and productivity, the innovation that removes waste, rework, snags and complexity, improve methods that remove the barriers to value creation. It's basically the continuous improvement mantra of better, faster, cheaper. Now, the market-facing disruptive and sustaining innovations we looked at at the start of the episode were born from deliberate, organised, planned efforts to improve product position and market share. But when it comes to the innovations that improve the way you do things inside your organisation, it has to be an intrinsic part of your culture, which means that, as a leader, you need to ensure that your people have the right attitude to innovation. Now, let's look at a few examples. We're largely talking about new ways of doing the same thing. And sometimes these come about by doing work in a more automated way. So there's been a real surge in the last several years of, uh, for example, automated software to process accounts payable. And as this more mundane work is automated, people are redeployed to doing higher value work. Another really striking example is the technology we now have to monitor motorised machinery that we didn't have 10 years ago. Cheap, reliable detection units can be attached to an engine to monitor vibration and harmonic frequency resonance. These devices can detect early signs of wear and tear and isolate potential failure. Now this is really important, right, because it enables maintenance to be dictated by the true condition of the asset rather than a one-size-fits-all maintenance schedule. And it both reduces maintenance cost and improves the asset reliability and useful life. How about drone technology? There are literally hundreds of applications for this. But a drone, when combined with GPS and high-quality digital imagery, can be used to map and monitor infrastructure like bridges and dam walls, identifying potential slippages or structural deficiencies. Most importantly, innovation comes, though, from a whole swag of really unsexy but critical work 
that improves the efficiency of everything you do. What it requires is for people to be constantly looking for bottlenecks and inefficiencies in their day-to-day work. And the reason this feeds into culture so intrinsically is that every individual needs to have a continuous improvement mindset. This not only needs to be created, but also consistently reinforced by every single leader to ensure that people aren't just accepting the status quo, but rather changing the things that simply don't make sense. All right, let's get back to our key question. Does innovation create value? Or more precisely, I guess, does it create the most value when compared with your other options for optimising your resources? Now, it's clear to see how customer-facing innovation can not only create value, but can actually be critical to a firm's ongoing survival. Of course, this depends on the industry, the markets, and competitive environment in which a business operates. But in order to work out the optimum balance between the planned work program and the spontaneous innovation, there has to be a structured approach. The high-level organisational strategy has to consider and explicitly define the areas of innovation in which it will invest. It has to determine how much focus and resource is going to be put into the constant renewal of products and services for the market in which it operates, and it has to be explicit about innovation as a value driver. Now, there's always going to be a balance between short-term returns that come from established products and services and long-term returns that enable a company to grow, evolve, and remain competitive. So I want to finish by talking about the everyday innovations of continuous improvement, the better, faster, cheaper types of innovation. And this is more often the type of innovation that leaders at all levels are going to have to learn how to manage. Now, with this type of innovation, you're dealing with one fundamental trade-off. On one hand, you have the simplicity and clarity of intent around value creation that comes through your annual strategic planning process. There are clear plans for what needs to be done to create value. There's already approved spend on certain projects and initiatives, and these have the weight of the formal organisational planning processes, as well as the imprimatur of the organisation's senior leadership. But to balance this, on the other hand, you have the ability and the need to achieve incremental ongoing improvements at the ground level by tapping into the innovation opportunities that only your people on the ground can unlock. And you certainly don't want to stifle the value that can be created through these day-to-day innovations. The clarity, simplicity and focus that comes with a planned approach to the work program can't be underestimated, but you also want to encourage your people to always look for new ways of doing things. If you want any innovation at all, you have to reward people for their efforts in finding better ways to do things. Now, I'm not necessarily talking about financial rewards, but you have to make it clear that this is part of what your organisation wants to be. I remember years ago when I did some work for a large airline, they had wanted posters all the way through their offices, with a silhouette of a human saying, $50,000 reward. It was basically advertising that any employee, any staff member at all, who came up with an idea that was then implemented into the airline's operations, was going to receive a $50,000 bonus. Now, this was a pretty big incentive to get people's creative juices flowing. But there has to be some sort of framework for dealing with all of the sorts of ideas that are going to be generated. In my experience, of every 100 ideas that are generated, there'll be, I don't know, maybe a dozen that are potentially value accretive, and of those, there'll only be a handful that you're actually going to want to implement because they create enough value. That's why it's really important to put a governance framework around any continuous improvement activities. So here's a couple of ideas that I would use. 
The first thing is, I just make sure that all ideas are actually brought to the table. You want to generate as many ideas as you possibly can. But then you've got to be able to sort out the dogs from the fleas. So having a limited investment pool is quite important. What I would do is allocate a small amount of investment funding for the day-to-day -day innovations that people come up with, and they have to compete for that money. But interestingly, once you give your people the freedom to think about how to improve the status quo, they'll be motivated because they'll realise they have the ability to make a real difference. But the governance process is so important so that you keep control of the value levers. You don't want to end up with an organisation that's fundamentally distracted from the main value game because of all the rats and mice ideas that are coming up and being pursued. So having explicit approval processes that your frontline and middle management can deploy enables rapid response to continuous improvement ideas, but it enables you to do it in a controlled manner where you're not bleeding value from the main game. And ultimately, you need to make sure that you have reporting visibility right up to the highest level over what's actually being done and where. Now, it's not hard to put forward a case for innovation, but just because the word innovation is sexy doesn't mean it's your best option for unlocking value. Is a dollar earned from innovation better than a dollar earned from a less risky, lower cost alternative? You know, probably not. There are no simple answers to this, but the frame for leaders should be to focus on value creation. That's it. First and foremost, just value creation. And don't be swayed by the excitement that comes from a love affair with innovation. Ultimately, you want to make sure your people are spending their time on the most valuable things, not just on polishing knobs. All right, so that brings us to the end of episode 115. Thanks so much for joining us. And remember, at Your CEO Mentor, our purpose is to improve the quality of leaders globally. So please take a few moments to rate and review the podcast and share it with your leadership network. I look forward to next week's episode. Feedback is a gift. Until then, I know you'll take every opportunity you can to be a no-bullshit leader. So you know how I've been asking you for the past month to share the podcast with your networks so that we can reach 1 million listens before the end of December? Well, it turns out a lot of you are doing it. We're actually up to over 900,000 downloads as of today, which is early November. This means that we're probably going to smash our 1 million listens goal if we keep this up. So you know what that means. It means that we're going to be throwing a completely free virtual leadership event in February. Head to www.yourceomentor.com forward slash stats, that's S-T-A-T-S, to keep up to date with the live listener number and to register your interest for the event. A big, big thank you for everyone who is sharing the podcast. Please keep it up so that we can make sure that we actually hit our 1 million downloads goal and so that we can continue to improve the quality of leaders globally. Have a great day, everyone.